I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Nicole Lacroix, and we're exploring Mozart's Clarinet Concerto, one of the most popular works for the clarinet. We talk about its origins for a slightly different instrument, what to listen for in each of the characteristic movements, and we even learn a little music theory. You've mentioned before, Nicole, that this is one of your favorite works. So what about it speaks to you? Well, I'm in love with singing, and this is a very singing piece. I also love the sound of the clarinet because it has such an immense range and a whole lot of color. And it's interesting you say as a singer loving the clarinet because, of course, Mozart also mentioned for him the clarinet was the instrument closest in quality to the human voice. And it has those singing qualities, too, doesn't it? Last night, I was lucky enough to go to the Kennedy Center to hear uh, the tenor Jonas Kaufmann in recital. And I was thinking the whole way through about the color, the timbre, the the lyricism, the changes of style going from a staccato or sort of um, a jumpy kind of rhythm to a, a beautiful lyric legato line. And I was thinking the clarinet does that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, as you're describing it, it almost sounds like, wait, what is she describing again? This concerto or, or, or the concert? There's a lot of similarities. So when did he complete this? I believe by early October 1791? Yes. And he wrote it for his friend and fellow Mason member, Anton Stadler, who was a fantastic performer by all accounts. And he had written a lot of pieces for him, including the clarinet quintet mm-hmm. and uh, some really beautiful, almost song-like parts to accompany arias in the opera that he was writing at the same time, La Clemenza di Tito, which uh, Stadler was performing at the time. And Stadler commissioned this work. He never paid him for it, though. No, he was not seen as someone very favorable to a lot of people. He was in the graces of uh, the Mozart family, and he did have a big impact, as you said, in the last 10 years especially for Mozart. A lot of clarinet parts written for Stadler with um, his influence in mind. And this is at a time when, I mean, people weren't including the clarinet as a standard instrument in the symphony. Mozart is the one one that did that and bringing it into further light here with the concerto. So it's already, he's already going in a different direction than other composers. Although today for us, it's like, well, it's a clarinet concerto. That seems so normal. And he wrote it for a different kind of clarinet. That's right, the Bassett clarinet, which this wasn't Stadler's invention, although I guess he tried to pass it off as his own. And basically, long story short, It is like your modern, normal clarinet that you would think of, but it's got an added extension that gives it a lower range. Just a few more notes, but they do have an impact. And the the bore size, the inner dimension, is also a little bit bigger, so it gives it this very resonant, almost soulful sound with those low notes too, but at the cost of projection. The modern clarinet, or as we should just say from now on, the clarinet, has a smaller bore, that offers great projection while still keeping that beautiful timbre, although a bit brighter. And when you go to a concert to see this or even just listen to it on the radio or or on Spotify or something, 
90% of the time, it's going to be the clarinet version because that's the instrument everyone plays today. The basset clarinet is obscure now, just as it was kind of obscure then. But if someone is a specialist on that instrument, they'll probably play it on that. But that's going to be a very specific type of performance of like recreating what Mozart would have heard, not your typical, you know, big orchestra where they don't have time to get into that much in detail or switch all these instruments. Rather, they just play the normal clarinet version, which there's some slight differences we'll show here and there. But by and large, in spirit, it's pretty much the same. And it must have been incredibly hard to play. So that gives us even more respect for Stadler's artistry, if not to, for his uh, his mores. Absolutely. And you think, well, then why on earth would Mozart write a concerto for an instrument that was already, I mean, obscure? No one really played this instrument besides Stadler. I mean, what's the point of this? And we have to think about how composers made money back in the day, uh, centuries before. Mozart wasn't making money from recording royalties or orchestras renting his parts. He wasn't going on a tour with the New York Philharmonic to play his new concerto. We think of that with composers like Rachmaninoff, for instance, who did basically all those things. For Mozart, that wasn't happening. The expectation was you would write a lot of new music, and there were a lot of commissions, because if you are, I guess, the royalty, I'm not playing last year's symphony in my after dinner in my um, concert hall or whatever. They want the newest thing. It was also a sign of wealth. Well, think of it, the opera that he had written just before this, La Clemenza di Tito, was written for the emperor Leopold II being crowned in Prague. That was the commission there. And just thinking for another moment on Stadler and the position Mozart was in at this time in 1791, he did die just two months later, he was getting out of a poor financial situation at this point, he was um, working very diligently to get a lot of music out there to, of course, make money. He had to write new stuff to get the income in, to pay for his lavish lifestyle, pay for his kids' very expensive education. And, of course, his wife, Constanzo, had health issues and had to go to various spas to get treatment. So he was in a not financial um, dire straits or something, but he was trying to, to stay above water. And Stadler owed Mozart a lot of money. We see that in the ledger lines after Mozart's death. Even when Mozart was having money problems or was just going into debt, he was still generous with others. I mean, offering money when he himself shouldn't be giving anybody any money. I guess that was uh, the whole Masonic thing. They were all friends and they, <laughs> they all borrowed from each other. But I guess Mozart at this time was also, he was the unpaid assistant to the Kapellmeister at St. Stephen's Church and was hoping that the Kapellmeister, who was elderly and ailing, would die so that he would get the job and a really good state salary. So he was probably very enthusiastic about the idea that finally he could make money. And it's so sad, I guess, because, of course, spoiler alert, as we've already said, Mozart dies just two months later. It's tragic. Every time you read about it, it brings tears to your eyes. Yes. So let's get into the music. Right from the beginning, the introduction starts with the theme of the first movement. It's this beautiful theme, starts in the strings, nice introduction, and then gets into the clarinet when the soloist comes in. And then from there, 
the clarinet is able to explore more extremes in the instrument's registers. You hear it go from, you know, playing a low note to a very, very high note, jumping around. And this is all happening while that very simple, compact theme comes back again and again. That's the great thing about this concerto. The, the themes are always being brought right back to the surface. One of the things that I've found really interesting in this, and keeping in mind the, the fragility of the instrument, of the solo instrument, is the way he orchestrates it so that he doesn't have any oboes, for example, that would really sort of pierce through. He has a very gentle, warm music bed almost so that the soloists can really shine. And thinking about the soloist and what you're hearing when you listen to this, we've mentioned it was written for this obscure Bassett clarinet, but how are we hearing modern recordings and performances of it? That's because almost everyone, they're playing it on the clarinet that we know and love and you see in the orchestra. There had to be some edits to make this happen, to make it so that the clarinet could play this Bassett clarinet part. Basically, because it can't play as low, those parts had to just be transferred either to another octave, like playing higher, or maybe just an edit with the notes that are played in the in the work in general. So for instance, towards the beginning, we get a very clear difference in the original Bassett clarinet and the clarinet version. Let's listen to this. lower. The notes are slightly different because, of course, the clarinet can't play those notes down there. And the timbre is different, right? I mean, this is a great recording. And the sound is more soulful. It almost sounds like a bass clarinet. And also, they never found the manuscript because apparently Stadler pawned it or something, Constanza said. So they're, they're basically, the musicologists are basically guessing what the original was. I wouldn't say guessing at all. So there's pieces that, you know, the manuscript is gone, but all the parts are available. So you can just rewrite out the score with those parts. Sometimes things are incomplete. You think of his Requiem that he died while composing. Then people have to kind of use the limited stuff that he wrote to create it. But with this, they already had the music, but the original manuscript was, um, was missing. And there is another moment in the first movement that really showcases some of the differences between the Bassett clarinet version and the clarinet version and kind of the consequences that come about of having to make it playable on the on the clarinet. But that is only if you're ready for a little music theory lesson. Absolutely. Okay, great. I'm all ears. This won't be too painful, I promise. So there is some basic theory that Mozart and every composer knows, like the back of their hand, and it's still taught like at, you know, year one theory at every conservatory. And that is how music or lines or notes interact with each other. And we have some different words to describe this, like contrary motion, similar motion, and parallel motion. Contrary motion is when two notes are moving in opposite directions of each other. So if you and I are playing two different notes and we each move in a different direction from each other, that's contrary motion. Like we're walking towards each other, walking down the street or away from each other, for example. Then we have similar motion and that's when we both move 
in the same direction, but at different intervals. Maybe I go from my note to one that's just a small half step up, and maybe you leap up by a major third. So now it's like we're walking down the street in the same direction, but I'm taking a bigger step uh, than you, so the distance changes. Then there's parallel motion, which means we're not only are we moving in the same direction, but we're moving by the same exact interval too. Now we're walking down the street kind of in lockstep with each other. We're so far so good? So far so good. And these aren't rules like someone necessarily made up. They're kind of like rules of, we think of rule of thirds in art or, um, you know, aesthetics. It's basically an observation of what's pleasing to listen to and kind of the least pleasing and being very, very broad here. But, you know, contrary motion, very pleasing. Parallel motion, less pleasing, similar is kind of in the middle. So I guess the next question is what on earth does this have to do with this concerto at all? There is a moment where the soloist is playing an E major arpeggio, they're outlining an E major chord, and then in the following measure, they go to an A major arpeggio. Now the basset clarinet with its extra low notes can play that A major arpeggio in the lower register, but the clarinet has to play it in a higher register because it doesn't have those notes down there to make an A major arpeggio. So in context, it sounds like this. Here is the line as played by the basset clarinet. And then the same thing on the clarinet. Okay, so when we listen to the Bassett clarinet one, I know we just listened to a few seconds of it, but there's something about it that's a little more pleasing, a little more gratifying, a little more complete. That's because Mozart is using contrary motion. As a soloist goes down, the accompanying parts, those notes, they're going up. Now, when you go to have to adapt it to the modern clarinet, you lose the contrary motion. Now you have similar motion. They're not moving by the same interval, but they're both going up and going back down. Very minor difference, but it shows there are unintended consequences that do affect, I think, even in small ways, the, the overall sound of the music. And it just shows the, the genius of Mozart mm-hmm. and, and also the artistry that must have been um, Stadler's. Okay, so now we have a pop quiz on what we just learned, Uh Nicole. No, I'm just kidding. But I hope that made sense. I mean, in the end, I think when you think, well, does it ruin the piece or something? Mozart would say, absolutely, who cares? It's fun. It works. But it's just, it's a little thing that you you do find. And it's fun to, I think it's fun to find those things. We also have another little music theory thing. We have a lot of pickups in the music. That is, would you like to describe pickups, Nicole? It's the upbeat to a measure. It can be an upbeat. It's when you have, to describe it as plainly as possible, it's like you have some few extra notes before your melody begins. It can be an upbeat into a measure. It can be three-eighth notes. Famously, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, those are pickups that lead into that next downbeat. What it does, it gives the music, even when it's just being you know lyrical and smooth, it gives it that forward motion. Um, It's always like being softly propelled. It it makes it feel not stagnant. But it's something to listen for, and it's a very fun first movement, isn't it? Very virtuosic. The soloist is constantly on the move. So that's why there is not a big cadenza? 
that's the funny thing about this, isn't it? There's no cadenza in the first movement. There's no cadenza in the third movement. In the second one, there is, but it's it's the most briefest of cadenzas you could imagine. Now, even though they say that uh, the clarinet sounds so much like the human voice, I, I can't imagine a human voice being able to do, sing in four different registers and, and those incredible leaps. Some of them are, you know, two and a half octaves. Oh, yeah. You'd have to be a one-of-a-kind singer to pull that off. Going into the second movement, this is a favorite among many, I think. It's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful moments, I think, in a concerto. It's the heart of the concerto. And this movement, really, it just shows off Mozart as truly an opera composer. Yeah, the clarinet is kind of like the the diva going through a whole series of emotions. But just from the very first notes, it just goes right to your heart. Oh, yeah. And that's also interesting. There's no long introduction. The clarinet comes right in with this theme, the main idea for the movement. At first, it feels like we have this duet between orchestra and clarinet as the orchestra kind of repeats back like this loving moment I, I think just between a soprano and a tenor or something like that and then the middle's a little different right it gets a little curious almost a little flirtatious and it sound it's, it gets a little more active and when you think about it when you hear it you think what is he trying to express here what does it mean He's telling some sort of a story. Is he talking about love? Is he talking about loneliness? Is he talking about maybe sadness of some sort? It's a good question, and I I have no real good answer because if we're talking about Tchaikovsky, yes, I would say there's some kind of underlying sadness or anxiousness involved, but Mozart, is he's so hard to pin down sometimes. He could have just thought of this tune while he was gambling away money, or he could have been at three in the morning by candlelight on a keyboard coming up with it. I have no idea, but it goes straight to your heart, and he knew exactly how to do that. Even though he said that music wasn't supposed to be overtly emotional, mm. it always had to be graceful and, uh, and within the good manners. Good manners. And he does kind of do that in this concerto talking about how things are very clean, very buttoned up. The orchestra is not fighting with the clarinetist. The clarinet does not have to fight to be heard. You think of concertos 100 years later when it is almost an antagonistic force between the two um, sides. But here, it's one is supportive of the other. And this one, it has just for the briefest moment a cadenza, a moment for the clarinet just to go from One note to a lower note, but in their own fashionable way. And think of what he was writing at the same time. He was writing the magic flute. He was writing that gorgeous two-and-a-half-minute sacred piece, Ave Verum Corpus, that also just goes right to your heart. And in the opera, the La Clemenza de Tito, there are two arias, I believe, where uh, Stadler, the clarinetist, was in a duet with a soprano. So really, with Stadler was... The was singing along with with the the soprano. So this is probably just another one of those. 
I think you're right. I think that's what it is. He's just, he's got that great part in La Clemenza de Tito and thinks, hey, that would work great here. Just a nice, beautiful dialogue. Even the end, it sounds like we should erupt in applause at the end because the singer has just finished this aria and they're about to walk off stage. And of course, it's appropriate. You need to clap. But here in this concerto, you're in an orchestra concert. Wait, we shouldn't be clapping. But wait, was this an aria? Well, you know, it reminds me of the uh, Jonas Kaufmann recital yesterday. He would he would end a song with the audience in, in the palm of his hand. And you would be breathing. And he had said before, don't clap, don't clap. And yeah. people clapped anyway. Oh. They couldn't help it. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's just it's just too exciting. That's the feeling you have here. And when you listen to this movement, listen for all those things that, especially you just described about these operatic qualities, a duet between um, soloists and, and, and the orchestra. It'll change how you think about this. If you've not thought about this before, of a duet, a flirtatious middle, and then an aria-like ending, I think it'll change how you listen to this. And then he changes completely when he goes into the third movement. He's like, okay, enough of that. And we'll get to that right after this quick break. And like you said, Nicole, everything changes with the final movement here. Also feels operatic in a sense, I have to say, the soloist walks off stage and then boom, we're right into this next person coming on stage. I think if I want to really, really analyze it, it's because he kind of dispenses with the introduction and he uses pickups, which we already learned about those extra notes. He uses the pickups to propel us into the finale and it's only in the soloist, the accompanying parts, they jump in after the cornet kicks it off. And this is an, a rondo movement. You want to explain to us what a rondo is? Well, in simple terms, we can say a rondo is when you're going to have this return of a theme, like we just heard in the beginning, very simple, even shorter than the kind of short theme of the first movement, very compact here. That theme returns again and again through the piece, and it has this very dance-like quality. It's moving forward. And in between these um, mentions of the theme are very, very contrasting different themes. So it's always returning to this. And it's kind of like a hook in your favorite song of whatever band you're listening to at the moment. Everything they're doing goes back to centuries before of, you know, simple lines and repetition. Repetition drives it into your brain, makes it fun to listen to. And again, I think it gives him that ability to okay, we can go wild and crazy in between here because we're going to go back to that theme with this rondo and it's going to bring everyone back home before we go out even further. And the idea, remember, they didn't have any recording, so they would only hear it probably just the once, if at all. That's a good point. (laughs) And how do you remember a tune? How do you uh, get an earworm? How do you leave the concert hall humming something if it's been repeated over and over and over again? That's exactly it. I mean, you're not going to remember some long-winded atonal theme when Mozart is giving you this right here. It's perfect. And as he gives us this return of the theme, virtuosic, it's fun, it's um, dance-like, I almost have, I almost don't have too much to say about this movement because Mozart gives it to us so simply because I really think Mozart, in the end, is a showman. He's a crowd pleaser through and through. He knew at this point in his career exactly what people would want to hear. Virtuosity paired with this also conservative aspect. And it's almost as simple as that. He was a showman, and this was just 
an explosive way to end the concerto. I mean, right from the beginning, those pickups to the end, you're just driving forward. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We're going to end it with a dance. It's going to be fun. You're going to in- enjoy all these fireworks by the by the soloist. And uh, thanks for coming. I mean, it gets pretty virtuosic. Here is just a moment for that in the instrument. operatic once again. And I mean, the range. Unbelievable. Just jumping from one thing to the next, long notes in that, also very quickly up and down. And something else to think about when you're watching this being performed on YouTube or live, look at what the clarinetist is doing with their fingers. I, I just know by by listening to this and from what I've seen, they're they're doing a lot of technical fingering here. Stuff that is kind of like a tongue, we call it like a tongue twister for your fingers. You have to practice very specific exercises to get all of your fingers to move individually of each other. Otherwise, it's easy when you push, you know, your ring finger down, your pinky goes down a little bit. Well, for musicians, you can't do that. You know, it has to be very, very, very precise with these minute movements. So just look for that because it sounds so easy. But when you look at them, I mean, it's like typing with your keyboard upside down, but it's, I don't know, made of tacks. And then you're reading uh, music that's actually in a different key from what you're playing. That's true. The clarinet is a transposing instrument. So if it sees uh, a C on the page, in this case, it plays a C, but what actually comes out is an A. That's a whole other story, but it's another level of complication to what musicians have to have to do. And then they have a read, right? At least they just have one read. <laughs> At least they have one read, but it, it is one to take care of, as we heard from Lynn Ma in our What is a Clarinet episode. But I mean, that's for me, that's really is a fun work. It's a crowd pleaser. It is operatic in different senses, like in the third movement, very lyrical, aria-like in, in the second Spiritual, movement. Spiritual, even, I would Spiritual, say. Spiritual. That's a good word for it. And then in the first movement, it's it's just such a typical concerto that I feel like Mozart's just wrapping everything up for us and just handing it to us on a silver platter. All we have to do is sit back and enjoy. And enjoy, you know, we're lucky because we can hear it multiple times, unlike the people in Mozart's day. Yeah. And you have to think about the people who lived for the decades after who never even knew about this piece because it was just simply never played where they were. Well, it wasn't published until about 20 years after it was written. That's right. I mean, it's hard to imagine the clarinet wasn't really that popular before Mozart. I mean, today, I mean, you throw a rock, you're going to hit someone who plays a clarinet, right? I mean, especially in a town like this, the clarinet is everywhere. It's in every symphony. It's in every opera. It's in every wind band piece you're going to find. But back then, Mozart was being a little more forward by including the clarinet in the symphonies and also giving them big lines in the opera. Think of Haydn. He was well into the 90s in terms of symphonies before he even included a clarinet. I mean, that's he's got almost 100 symphonies with no clarinet. Well, it had been what? It didn't really come out until the 1770s? Yeah, it was evolving from... If, if you don't know a lot about the clarinet, you got to listen to our What is a Clarinet episode with Lin Ma from the NSO because he outlines this beautifully for us. It's basically the last 100 years that the entire thing comes from, you know, a seed 
to this instrument, which is very fast, especially back then. And it was just hard. To, it's hard to believe. It just wasn't standard. Well, that's Mozart's clarinet concerto. Now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Classical Anne gave us five stars and said, Thank you for premiering Classical Breakdown. I'm really enjoying it and learning new things that I didn't know before. I've always had a love affair with classical music. I remember my late grandma told me stories of the classical music she learned in school. Well, thank you so much, Classical Anne, for that review. And I, I too, have great memories of music and my grandmother. I'm sure we all do at that. Thinking about that person who introduced us to music and the impact they have. Well, that's it for Mozart's Clarinet Concerto. Do you have anything else, Nicole? Like Classical Anne, every time I listen to one of these podcasts or even participate in them, I learn so much. So thank you, John. Well, thank you, Nicole. It takes two to tango, right? <laughs> or to uh, to Rondo. To Rondo, that's it. Well, thank you so much. 